Blog Talk Radio. August 16th, 2013 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. It's the show where we discuss news and politics, also culture, from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. That's the philosophy behind the uniquely American sense of life, the sense of life of those who believe we have the right to life, liberty, and most importantly, the pursuit of your own individual happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and I am hoping that later in the show, cartoonist Bosch Fossen will join me in the studio. He's actually tied up right now, but I think that turns out to be okay because we're going to start off with an interview, and we don't want too many voices at once. I'm going to be happy to welcome today, in a minute here, uh, Ann Ciccolella and Jeff Bridding. They are the director and the adapter, respectively, of the Anthem, the play. Anthem is a novel by Ayn Rand, if you're not familiar with it. And there is a play that is going to be starting off-Broadway soon in New York City. And uh, as I said, Anne is the director and Jeff Britting is the adapter. So I'm happy to welcome them. Let me see if we've got them here on the line, if we can make them live. I think that is Anne. And I think this is Jeff. Can you both hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear us? I can hear you, Anne. Jeff, are you there? Hello, Jeff. I am. Thank you. Mm, I've got a bad connection with you, Jeff. Is there a way that you could try calling back in again and we see if we get a better better connection? Sure. Let me let me see if the audience can hear you. Everyone in the chat room there, we have the chat mm-hmm. room over at Blog Talk Radio. Can you type in and tell me, uh, Jeff, why don't you head and sp- go ahead and speak a little and see if they can hear you? I know okay. that some t- yeah, yeah, sometimes they can hear you just perfectly fine, and I'll, only I am having the trouble hearing you because of the way that Blog Talk is set up. So speak a little for them. Uh, so thanks, Amy, for having us on the show. Okay, yeah, they they are saying Jeff that you sound like you're cutting out as well. Yeah, and is he that sounds true? like a Martian. Yeah, so maybe go ahead and try it and hang up and call in again, Jeff. Could you? Okay, I think sure probably. He's he's, that. Uh, so we I have people probably. in the chat room. Yes, we have people in the chat room. And, uh, yeah, we've got people in the chat who could ask questions later when we go ahead and take questions. And then later, also, they said that they would take questions live, everyone. So if you want to do that, you call 760-888-5817. But don't do it until later when we go ahead and take questions. We're going to have a little back-and-forth interview with them for a bit. I don't know if you want to start off. uh, Let's see, we've got another uh, phone call, but it looks like it's from the same number. Maybe this is Jeff. very. It could be Jeff. Hi, is this Jeff? This is he. Okay, wow, excellent, wonderful, Jeff. You sound good. Oh, good. Beautiful, beautiful. Glad, so glad let's, to be here and on Earth tonight. Yeah, I guess I guess you are still cutting out a little bit, but it's not as bad as it was before. So let's let's go ahead and try and get started and see how we do. I don't know which of you wants to take 
this general question that I start off with, but whoever wants to dive in, just tell the audience, for those who aren't familiar, what is Anthem? Well, Anthem is a short novel by Ayn Rand. You know, people think of Ayn Rand as Atlas Shrugged, and even The Fountainhead is a pretty substantial novel. But this is a novella, so it's less than 100 pages. And it really is uh, about a sort of dystopian future. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, I just found some statistics that for the past couple of years, it's been the most checked out book in the adult section of New York Public Library. Hmm. So it's, it's that- a very popular Ayn Rand novel, and lots of young people read it. And of course, there's a big essay contest. The Ayn Rand Institute has a uh, essay contest on Atlas and Fountainhead, but on uh, Anthem as well. And for lots of people, it's their favorite Ayn Rand book. What would you say, Jeff? Jeff, did you hear what she said? I think, uh, um, can, you, can you hear me? I, I can hear you. It's, it's it's a little cut up, but it sounds better than it did before. She said that okay, for a, 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 a number of people think that Anthem is their favorite book by Ayn Rand, and so then she asked you what you thought. Uh, it's one of my favorites. Uh, it's become a favorite the, during the time that I've been living with, so a work of adaptation to adapt. Adapt. Um, but I agree, one of my top favorites. But uh, actually, my top favorite novel. And I suppose that makes sense because the fact I think of Anthem as being the Fountainhead's uh, younger brother. Right, right. Now, I think you're still sounding like you're cutting up. How are you hearing that, Anne? Yes? Yes, it's bad. It is okay. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm getting the consensus here that it's it's pretty bad sound. So why don't we have Jeff try call in from his iPhone? Yeah, try the try the phone again, Jeff. I'm sorry. Okay, will do. Okay, sorry. okay. Thank you, thank you. Um, so, so the reason why Jeff said it's the younger brother is because Ayn Rand was writing the Fountainhead and took a break, and during the break she wrote Anthem. Right. So right. Can, Tell us more about that, but a lot of the themes in the Fountainhead, obviously, particularly of individuality and of sort of of growing up, of coming of age and yearning, uh, really is beautifully articulated in Anthem. It's almost like a fable in some ways. But Amy, what's your take? What's your favorite one, and, and how do you like Anthem? Well, I think for a lot of people, if and, and many people are like me, where the introduction to Ayn Rand came through the Fountainhead, and so that ends up having a sentimentality added to the enjoyment of it. So I, I think I would count the, the Fountainhead as, as my favorite, but I really do enjoy Anthem. And, uh, yeah, in particular, we don't want to give any spoilers about, um, you know, per- particular language and things like that. So... Sure. Um, to, to people who haven't read it. For people who have not read Anthem, it is an easy afternoon kind of read. I mean, you can, you know, very quickly read through That's one of the things that's, you know, with, with Ayn Rand, you can spend many days in total suspense wanting to, you know, to know what happens and you give up on meals and social life and all these <laughs> things. And that's not the case with Anthem. With Anthem, you can read it in one sitting and, and uh, not give up too much of the rest of your life during that time period. So that's one definite benefit in, in its favor. Um, 
Now, one thing that I read, and Jeff sent me this uh, interesting little history, because Jeff has done so much work with the archives at the Ayn Rand Institute. He sent me a little history, but it was, I don't know, five, ten minutes before the show, so I just got to glance at it. But one thing I didn't realize before that was in that history is that Anthem was originally written as a play. Is that true? I think it was originally conceived as a play in Ayn Rand. Or not, not written, yes, yes, conceived, conceived, yes. As a student in Russia. And uh, I think she just thought it would be easier to get it published and not have to go through the whole playwriting process uh, once she was in the state to uh, to write it. But uh, it's it's unusual because it really is in the first person. I mean, we as you say, we don't want to give away anything, but uh, it's it, you know it really is from a young man's point of view, and that's why I said a coming of age story. Uh, but he does fall in love with a girl, and and again in a very dystopian uh, world. Right, right. Now, Jeff, uh, can you hear us okay now? I've, I've yeah, got I you. Can. And I've, can you hear me? I can hear yeah, you better than on better. Skype, which is pretty crazy, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for uh, finally hooking me up here. No, and and thank you for persisting and, and getting connected here. And so, yeah, we were just talking, you know, you sent me the, the history uh, several, just a few minutes before the show started, so I didn't have a chance to really look at it. But I was just really struck by the idea of Anthem having first been conceived as a play. So I thought that was really interesting. I don't know if that made your job any easier, Jeff, or not, but did it? Actually, I think... I think not. Uh, I really didn't. In fact, over the course of the whole adaptation, the work on it, I really felt in sync with the material, and I didn't feel like there was anything hovering over me. And even the fact of of the um, uh, idea that the play was originally, or the play, my adaptation was taken from a book that was originally thought of as a play, was it didn't prove daunting, but it did prove it, it, it suggested to me that there was, in this literary work, um, the bone structure of a really interesting stage performance. So it was, in effect, uh, inspiring. Okay. So it didn't necessarily make it easier, but it gave you inspiration in, in that sense. So, again, I'm, yeah, I, I'm talking for, for people who are just tuning in right now. I'm talking to Jeff Britting. Mm-hmm. And Anne Chickalella. Anne is the director. Jeff is the adapter of Anthem the Play. It is the forthcoming off-Broadway. Is that right? It's an off-Broadway produ- production in New York City? That's right? That's correct. Okay, mm-hmm. excellent. And, and we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. But I just wanted to lay the groundwork now that we got the, uh, the sound quality out of the way. Now, how did this particular show originate? Well, uh, Jeff likes to tell this story, so I'll let him tell the story. But Jeff and I knew each other for a number of years and never really figured out how to collaborate. Jeff had been involved in theater and film and writing music and so on. Uh, but uh, actually, I made a little proposal to Jeff. Jeff, do you want to tell the story? <laughs> I was in, uh, actually, it was over a dinner in Austin, Texas. Um, I was in Austin uh, presenting at the philosophy department at the University of Texas. And um Ann and I had dinner one evening, and uh, we were, you know, as as Ann said, we had talked about different things, but we had never really worked on anything together. And at one point during the meal, she turned to me and said, well, what about Antha? And we'll, let's do something with that. And I took a breath, and she said, I really would love to see 
um, Anthem is an oratorio, and that took my breath away, actually. Um, and now, I, what, is an, I, what is an oratorio for those of us who are not educated? Well, an oratorio is, is an, um, an ex, uh, a setting of a long text to music. So really, it's a concert uh, version of a, a literary work, and um, you know there are there's a whole history of uh, uh, sacred and secular oratorios that deal with with long text. So it's not an opera. It's not um, a work that is dramatized, but it's a, a work that is sung. And I thought that was a really interesting idea. But I really think in in the the back of my mind, I, I suspected what she wanted was something like wall-to-wall music in this performance of what would eventually become a play, and that's what uh, it has become. It's uh, not an oratorio. It's it's a play with music, which is a, a genre of uh, theater that uh, was very popular at the end of the 19th century. Um, many straight plays, many dramatic works, that is, non-musical uh, works, had very extensive scores uh, underneath dialogue and action and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ibsen is an example of this, and uh, we decided to loop back to this old form, which is Excellent. pretty effective. Now, you started by having the show put on in Austin, and how did it do there? It did great. Uh, thank you for asking, Amy. Um, we uh, are in a performing arts center here, and I, I am the artistic director for Austin, Shakespeare, and that's really the producing company that's bringing Anthem to New York. Uh, and uh, we just found that audiences came from around the country and around the world. There were lots of, you know, Austinites, lots of people who liked Shakespeare, but uh, we also saw that there was a, a draw beyond our uh, local audience. So uh, we, you know, hoped that uh, we would get this New York gig and uh, you know, miracle of miracles, uh, a couple of Ayn Rand supporters uh, came, stepped forward and, and said, we'd like to make this possible. So we're obviously very grateful for that. And now our dream is coming true this fall. So that's excellent that you've been able to get some support to make this happen. In terms of bringing it to New York, why is now the right time to do this? You did mention, Anne, when we were talking a few minutes ago, that the anthem, the the novel, is the most checked out of Ayn Rand's titles at, I think you said the New York Public Library, is that correct? So maybe there's a building fondness for anthem in New York City? Well, uh, what actually the statistic came out of the New York Post, and it's the most checked out book of any book. Oh, of any book, not just Ayn Rand's books, okay. It's it's the most popular adult novel. A couple of years ago. So uh, clearly, it's it's a very imaginative work. It's not as directly political as Atlas Shrugged, say. But we think it really is uh, an opportunity to open conversation about ideas and misconceptions, we think, about individualism and collectivism. And after every performance, uh, we're going to invite anybody in the audience who wants to stay just for 10 minutes to talk to us about it, to tell us, their reactions, to ask any questions that they might have of the actors and so on. So, Amy, you were in Austin for a while, so you were part of that. I remember a, uh, a adaptation I did of uh, um, uh, Antigone, mm-hmm. in which we were talking about, you know, could justice be objective and so on. 
in which the uh, conversation got so lively, I think Amy got on her feet. And I was like, oh, my God, she's on her feet. Is she going to hit somebody? But, you know, it's very exciting when you start to talk about subjectivism and objectivism and what's possible and so on. People get uh, uh, very involved with it. So I think it is a, a time to have a cultural uh, dialogue about Ayn Rand's ideas, and obviously these are very, very essential ideas. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, again, this the the play when you, uh, the play now I'm saying the play the book when you read it at the end you are extremely moved, and I think you see the you know the concretization in a very dramatic way of, of some very big ideas that are out there. I think definitely people will draw some parallels to things that are going on today, perhaps not in the same you know concrete way as Atlas Shrugged for a lot of stuff that you know we keep reading the newspapers and we say oh that's just right out of Atlas Shrugged. It's uh, yeah. this is a little bit more abstract, but I think it's going to be quite you know just as powerful. Uh, in Austin, did you do this? Did you do this type of discussion after the run of Anthem there? We sure did. And, you know, people would we just try to make it brief, you know, ten or fifteen minutes. Uh, so, but people would continue the conversation out in the lobby, out out in the street. So uh, it was very lively. And you know, Austin, Texas, is known as a place for people who are intellectual and very we have very involved audiences so it was exciting uh you know uh Euron Brook the president of the Ayn Rand Institute was one of the people who came to see it and he made a comment to me afterwards that was really a, a great compliment and that was he said I didn't know I needed this mm. so like any artwork it has a fuel to it it's not you know, hitting your head, your, you know, you over the head. It's you're living in another kind of stylized world, and it re- re- refuels you. You know, and that was such a wonderful comment. Right, and to be able to see this in New York City today, where I'm sure that a lot of the things that are on Broadway, off Broadway, off off Broadway, whatever, uh, aren't going to be nearly as inspiring or or provide the type of fuel that this performance will for sure. So speaking of which, what is this difference? What is off-Broadway, Broadway, Broadway, off, off off-Broadway? What does all this mean? Well, you know, it's so interesting. Uh, They are designations. Broadway is a geographic area, just four or five blocks square, but it's also a financial commitment. You know, a Broadway show is now a million dollars plus. So an off-Broadway show is at a very high level of production, uh, but our show will be in a, in a uh, theater that is 199 seats. So it will be a very intimate experience. You'll be really close to the actors. Uh, but we have top people doing all the production elements, sets, lights, costumes. We auditioned uh, 275 actors for the six roles that are in the play. And, uh, Jeff, would you like to describe the Barishnikov Arts Center where we're performing? Oh, right. Uh, well, it's it's an emerging uh, performing arts space in New York. It's on the west side, just slightly out of the so-called Broadway box, which um, uh, ends the south in Manhattan on 42nd Street. Um, it is, I would consider it kind of a, right, a left-of-center Lincoln Center, and that it's um, it's a... Uh, a dance, theater, and musical space that uh, has a very strong interest in um, emerging uh, but established performing arts groups from around the the country and around the world. Um, uh, A number of 
uh, people have commented about the Barishnikov Association. The, the, that's Mikhail Barishnikov, the, the dancer, and his mm-hmm. company uh, several years ago took over this space and did extensive renovations on it, including um, ex- a significant uh, reworking um, of the space that we're going to be occupying. So what we're uh, basically presenting this work is in is a uh, a major small cultural uh, art center that's got some buzz and in a space that is brand spanking new, um, coming fully loaded with all the um, wonderful uh, sound and lighting um, capabilities that uh, modern theater can provide. So we're very excited about this. Yeah, if you want to go online, uh, you or your listeners, the Barishnikov Arts Center you can see some great pictures. We're in the space called the Jerome Robbins space, which is really the nicest of the of the spaces. And uh, you can check out the uh, the photos online as well. And how long is this run going to be? The run is 10 weeks, so we're very excited. We start previews September 25th, mm-hmm. and we end on Thanksgiving weekend. The final performance will be on December 1. So it would be a great little you know Thanksgiving trip where... Uh, a wonderful New York jaunt uh, to go to uh, to see Anthem. Yeah, if people like fall in the East, especially in New York City, it would mm-hmm. be a great a great time to go. Let's go back a little bit. You mentioned uh, the casting, and you said that you mm-hmm. interview you uh, auditioned over two hundred and seventy. Mm-hmm. Is that right for the six roles? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. w- anything else about the casting that we should know in terms of who you've got? Well, there are lots of yeah, we're very excited about the group. Uh, there are lots of young roles in it, so we have some terrific uh, young actors. Uh, our uh, Matthew Christian, our uh, lead, is a recent graduate of Harvard and just a really terrific actor. And uh, uh, we have some uh, older actors as well who, uh, you know, were experienced. And uh, Tina was uh, uh, at was grandmother in Into the Woods. At the Delacorte Theater uh, in the Lincoln in, par- in the Central Park, so uh, it was it was great. And, and uh, the actors who came out, you know, some people knew Ayn Rand and were excited to audition for such a play. Some people just, you know, were out looking for a job and, and did really well. But uh, we're very excited. So I will start rehearsing uh, right after Labor Day. Did you um, retain any of the cast from the Austin production, or no? You know, we didn't. It's so costly right. uh, to, yeah. you know, bring actors and house them in, in New York uh, that we uh, – and, and Jeff has rewritten the script uh, substantially, which is great. We are bringing our wonderful lighting designer. Uh, the light design is very inventive and imaginative. Uh, he is going to come to do a light design. But other than that, sets, uh, costumes, more sound. Uh, Jeff has written some more music for it. And we also have a sound designer for actual a soundscape, if you will, something like sound effects. So the and the music is really beautiful. I mean, nobody's singing, but uh, as Jeff said, it does have wall to wall sound. Yeah. So, no, so, I, so I no, nobody, think... nobody's nobody's singing at all. Is that right? Now, now, Jeff, go. Let's let's go back sure. because you were ta- you were talking about the the music before, and uh-huh. early earlier in the show when we, you were talking about this, I was uh, a little bit distracted to think about the sound. Did you say that there was a term for this type of production that you've done a throwback to, like the old Ibsen and stuff like that? I'm not sure if I I missed a vocabulary word that I should have glommed onto. Well, uh, it was. 
just that it um, actually I understand this as um, the original uh, meaning of the word melodrama. Melodramas okay. uh, were were dramas, straight plays that is non-musical plays with music and they and music functioning very much like music functions in contemporary uh, cinema as an underscoring of action and as another part of the storytelling process that's you know coordinated and keyed into what's going on stage and this um, in the late 19th century a number of you know significant composers came in and worked with leading dramatists of the day. And what we have of their work are concert suites from those uh, theatrical uh, performances. Pierre Gint is um, an example of, a, of such a suite. Um, what I did was, and what I've been doing for uh, probably 25, 30 years, is working with um, that form again and bringing it into the, you know, the... the the technical uh, offerings of the present day, but also just, you know, even prior to being big, hugely interested in the technical aspects of this, just the, the theatrical, the theatricality of the present day. So all of this, the shows that I've worked on, I've worked on maybe in excess of the 13 stage plays, have all been straight plays, have all been dramas, been, you know, sometimes dramas of ideas. Um, and all of them have had this, uh, have incorporated music in in that extra special manner of fulfilling, you know, the dimensions of music in a film score. And I find that uh, the actors uh, are really delighted, for the most part, in having another, in this case, aural prop for them to uh, help tell the story. And uh, it gets very exciting because you know very often I'm I'm writing the cues the sequences you know from script in this uh, case I'm writing from my own adaptation which is especially thrilling but I'm looking at the pages and I'm anticipating what the action would be and it's mm -hmm. unlike when I'm looking you know I'm doing a film job where I'm looking at the picture on the screen on the monitor and then I'm timing this closely, I have to wing it when I'm doing the theater, you know, dealing with theater. So I look at the page, I anticipate the big punctuation points, and then I just start playing and actually sometimes literally composing right with the script open in front of me uh, and with the uh, notes just, you know, spilling out of my fingers. And in this case, they, they spill the plenty because there's plenty of music in this. Well, and, and, and since you and your mind already have an idea of, of what's coming next, it's almost like the flow would come more easily, it would seem. You know, Jeff, I would say uh, in terms of what you do, I'm fairly ignorant, but recently I've been made aware of the role and the power of, of a soundtrack with a movie. And the example that I'm going to mm. give you, you might scoff at, but it's um, <laughs> the, the the Dark Knight Rises and and. Hans Zimmer in certain points of the movie where the score changes with the revelation of certain facts to the audience and you can actually, you know, you can hear what basically I think the audience is feeling in the music. So I've seen this. Again, you might scoff mm -hmm. at my example, but I... I <laughs> no, it sounds like a good example. And that's, okay. that's exactly what music does. And in fact, you know, the, the, 
a good experiment for people unconvinced that music has any role whatsoever in a film is just cut the soundtrack. You know, right. watch a watch the picture and do so in a theater with a, a you know, a 40, 30 foot wide, you know, 18 foot tall screen if I got the aspect ratio correct. And just and and see how many seconds you can stay in your seat without starting to wiggle, in 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 ir- real irritation. You know, anytime the the picture is a little fuzzy, a little uh, choppy, people can can tolerate that uh, remarkably. So, but cut the sound out, and all of a sudden you'll have a riot, riot in the right. theater. Oh, I, I would think so. I definitely think so. Just to clue those people in who have tuned in recently here, I am talking with Jeff Britting, the adapter, and Ann Ciccolella, the director of the forthcoming off-Broadway production of a play based on Ayn Rand's anthem. And so let's go ahead and continue. I've got a few more questions, and I'm hoping the audience will join in with some questions too. Those of you in the chat room over at blogtalkradio.com can put questions into the chat if you have any for our guests. Also, you can call 760 760- Eight 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 five eight one seven. Make sure that you hit one or whatever it is the Blog Talk Radio menu tells you to do if you want to talk to the host. Is how they put it in the menu. So mm-hmm. let's let's go ahead and continue. Yeah, Ann says I experienced that personally. Um, I yeah, did. We, we, I pressed one. Exactly, exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, that that's how it tells me that you actually want to talk. Some people call in and they actually listen to the show through the phone, so that's why you hear that sometimes. But uh, in terms of this production upcoming in New York City, what do you see as the greatest challenge of making it a success? Well, I think you know, uh, getting the audience. Uh, meaning, I am convinced. You know, we've done this production in sort of miniature here in Austin. So I know the power of the production, and we did a reading of it actually uh, in, in New York City last fall. So I truly think the product's going to be terrific. Uh, so getting the word out, we are uh, having ads in the New York Times. Will be the New York Times in their theater section has just a listing, ABC listing they call it, with little boxes, and we'll be in there every day. Uh, we'll be having ads on the weekends. There'll be a New York Times you know, season preview, so we'll be in that. So uh, it's interesting. When we interviewed lots of experts in the New York theater world, we ran the gamut. Some people said, oh, everyone want to come and see this. Ayn Rand is everybody's guilty sin. And then some mm. people said, oh, no, New York is such a liberal Democrat city. People will not come. So it'll be interesting. But some of that, uh, you know, provoked us to use the first words of the novel. So our poster image uh, has written on it the first line of the novel, which is, it is a sin to write this. Yes. So uh, uh, we're very excited. About it. And people can go look. Uh, there is a website up, anthemtheplay.com, where they can see the image. Uh, Frank faber Verlisto did the uh, visual for us, and he is a, uh, you know, a very high-end uh, graphic designer for New York Theater. He did The Lion King and many other famous posters. But uh, so I, I think it's the audience. Uh, Jeff, do you agree? Uh, I think so. I, I think you know there are 400 productions that occur in a season in a year in New York, and on any given night there could be 30 things opening off, 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 and on Broadway in all, uh, and that's just in theater. And I think the important thing uh, going for us 
here is that there's a tremendous name recognition um, with the property. It's Ayn Rand. Uh, Ayn Rand's works are well known. The, you know, Ayn Rand is a cultural meme. 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 Is that the correct meme? Meme. Yes. Sorry. Uh, I would also use the word trope or just a, a, an annuity um, in all New York publications. I mean, there's a, you know, as a person who's collected, you know, information on Ayn Rand for now several decades and then has had the chance to look at Ayn Rand's, uh, you know, papers closely over the years, um, papers that include decades of mentions of her works, Today's publications and today's media almost have, have a, um, well, like a, a quota of Ayn Rand mentions that they have to. You know, yeah, you know, there's, the um, I, don't, I don't know if you should subscribe, Jeff, to the online service called Randex. I think you can get an email subscription to yeah. it, and they all, they also tweet out regularly. They must just be overwhelmed and inundated with the mentions of Ayn Rand in the media now, mm-hmm. partic- particularly since Barack Obama has taken office and she's selling hundreds of thousands per year in unprecedented levels, et cetera. So I, I think, you know, one of the things we were talking about earlier, you know, what why is this the right time for Anthem in New York City? I think part of it is because the culture, particularly after all of this NSA revelations mm-hmm. recently, mm-hmm. the the idea of an overbearing government, you know, of any sort of a totalitarianism, which Ayn Rand is is uh, you know rallying against in it in all of her works, including Anthem, the the idea mm-hmm. of totalitarian control is is coming home to people a lot more now than it ever was. And this is probably before you even plan your, I mean, this is after you planned your production, but I think that, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the NSA revelations play right into this. I think it's going to help uh, make people more receptive to the message. Yeah. 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 And, you know, the, the story of Anthem is, you know, a, uh, is a, a real bright light against that kind of, you know, background that you Described. Here we have a dark future and a young man who rebels against uh, the only world he's ever known, a world of total conformity, and uh, he does so by asserting his preferences, his his love of discovery and his love of knowledge, and that leads to uh, the rediscovery of a very essential idea, a very essential word that is key to his future, his happiness, and the happiness of people that he uh, falls in love with or befriends in the story. So the, the notion of the, the play being, um, uh, you know, identified by Ayn Rand is certainly true, but the content of the, of the story, especially at this time, I think is going to be a real um, uh, uh, attention grabber for audiences, especially no, I do. in New York. I, 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 I definitely think it will resonate with people, and you know I, ha- I have been amazed. It's actually been liberals who have shared objectivists' horror at what the NSA is doing more than conservatives. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I think that yeah. you know, you, and and it, it's always interesting to see which issues are going to make us side with liberals versus conservatives on on different things. But that's really where we are right now, and I think that's one of the big things that is you know turning people uh, sort of against. The, the current administration. 
Um, in, in terms of you using that line in the ad, it is a sin to write this. You know, this this idea also that if certain forms of expression, um, certain content of expression is being mm-hmm. discouraged. It's it's a horrible example, but there's one story in the news this week that uh, you know just plays right into this, which is that stupid clown story, right, out of Missouri, where somebody, you know, puts on a little clown performance as Barack Obama, and then suddenly people are calling for a federal investigation. You know, we're hmm. we're supposed we're supposed to live in a free country where you can express any sort of idea that you want. And of course under Bush, I don't know if you had heard there was a movie that supposedly depicted the assassination of George Bush. That was a movie that was released during his it was I think it was called The Death of a President or something. So this mm-hmm. movie depicts and everyone says, Oh well, you know, that's fair game. Everybody can do that and now, you know, with Barack Obama president, here's this guy, he does a clown thing. It, yeah, you might think it's tasteless, you wouldn't do it, but nonetheless mm-hmm. we have freedom of expression in, in our country or we're supposed to. I think that if you have that line in the ad, is it a, it is a sin to write this? And, you know, people have this idea that the NSA might be reading their emails at any time, et cetera, et cetera, that I think think it will. I think it's going to very much resonate with people. So in terms of a challenge of of attracting the audience, I'm I'm optimistic for you. But what what excites you, what, you know, versus a challenge, what excites you? Well, being in the rehearsal process with Jeff's script, and he's, you know, taken Anthem and, and run with it in terms of creating characters that are suggested in the novel and so on. So there's nothing like working and talking and feeling Ayn Rand's work uh, with, with a group of actors. And, of course, you know, bathing in the actual performance, dying to have people react to it, hearing Jeff's music in the theater. Uh, that's what turns me on. Yeah, I would, I would, I would second that. And <clears throat> I, would, I would add that it's you know, Anthem as a work was always a little abstract for me. And it was um, only in the course of adapting it that I really became intimately connected with it. And, in a, and that involves very much the, uh, the dramatic process of concretizing this. So I now think of equality as a, a character that has dimensionality, simply having gone through one production and now anticipating uh, you know, a 10-week run where I'll be, you know, uh, able to uh, witness this uh, this character, you know, eight shows a week. But it's also the character and his relationships, and it's the the um, it's like adding another. It's it's like hearing about uh, some interesting people that you always wanted to get spend more time with, and in effect, going into the theater for a very uh, calculated experience, you get to witness these people come to life in a way that um, adds to, I think, the experience. And I would say adds to it Mm -hmm. because I've really tried to keep the story and the new material flowing out of the story, basic story and the theme. And Mm -hmm. that was not difficult to do because there's such an abundance of implications in the story uh, as tersely presented as it is in, in the novel form that that lend themselves to um, the, the, the additions that were made and also keep us on track, I think. 
Now, Jeff, you, you had mentioned this idea of spending time with these characters that you would want to actually mm-hmm. see. And mm-hmm. I can't remember the exact line from Ayn Rand, but you know I run this little Ayn Rand bot on Twitter. It's actually up to 13.2 thousand followers now, which is wow. wonderful. Yeah, so I've got 675 quotations in this database, and, and it goes out there. And one of them, I remember, she says when she's thinking of writing, and it, I'm just paraphrasing. She says when she's thinking mm-hmm. of writing about characters, she asks, would she want to meet these people in real life? Yeah. You know, like, you know, would it be interesting to see them in real life? So I think that you've definitely hit the nail on the head there in terms of saying, I want to make this play such that not only you, Jeff, but the audience, you know, you enjoy seeing these characters portrayed in front of you. Absolutely. And and it it's it's what precedes the experience of the characters. It's walking into a space. It's being met with a whole sensory environment, music, light, Mm -hmm. um, temperature, taking your seat, getting settled, interacting with other people who uh, either close to you in conversation or several rows away are all there for the same purpose. And there's an interesting journey um, uh, that you take with your audience members in this. And I think that in part, is reflected uh, by the response, and the very talkative response at the end of the show, where people really wanted to to step up to the plate, step up to the stage, um, and express a viewpoint, positive or negative. They were stimulated. They were they wanted to to take what they saw and what it evoked in their life and comment on it and bring it to the attention of the people that they just had this you know, a theatrical experience with. So it's it's really multidimensional here. You know, it's but it's all toward one end and that's seeing these characters uh ripple to life under the under the the, the staging of, of Anne. Um I mean and that as a as a you know sidebar has been one of my real pleasures in this whole process because you can spend literally months and and in months, weeks at a time, and hours of a day, thinking of this stuff and putting it on paper, and even composing music. Right. But but then it's all afar, and then you walk then you walk into the theater at a certain point, and this has always been true of um, my you know, prior work. I meet the director eight, ten weeks before. They give me notes. I go and do my music, and then uh, when the first uh, tech rehearsal begins, when all the elements come together, that's when all hell breaks loose and that's when, you know, you start really the, the, the piece comes together. Well, walking into a space where the piece is coming together and witnessing that that building is one of the most thrilling experiences in life. And then to see it take root uh, in the audience mind and develop uh, to such an extent convincingly so, where the audience wants to react. They want to say something. And this I experienced repeatedly in Austin. The, the, the audiences were, you know, divided into three types I saw generally. There were the theater-going audiences that uh, were patrons of Shakespeare, knowledgeable theater-goers. They heard about Ayn Rand. They may not like Ayn Rand as a as a thinker, particularly, or a philosophy, but they know she's a good storyteller, so they came and they liked it. And then there mm-hmm. were the people who were, you know, kind of in the objectivist 
Camp, who, frankly, from the few people that I did speak to, had zero expectations for the show. They came, and they liked it. And then there was mm-hmm. the third uh, wing of people who heard about an interesting show, and they didn't know anything about it, but they thought it would be an interesting evening's you know, theater, and they came, and they liked it. So that process, either plugging into the development of a show or seeing the, the show's impact uh, before the audiences and the, the kind of actions that they take, the spirited discussion that flows out of that experience, that as an arc, you can't get any better than that. Yeah, you know, I was I was thinking before that as a fundraiser, what you guys could have done is afterwards just have all night coffee available for people to sit there and have discussions. You know, uh-huh. especially when you've got something that's so thought provoking as, as an Ayn Rand play. So again, you're listening to Jeff Britting. He is the adapter of the play based on Ayn Rand's novel Anthem. And Anne, I was going to follow up uh, with a question for you about these discussions that you were going to have after the performances in New York City. Again, the off-Broadway performance of the play starts September 25th, I think you said. Uh, Are the discussions going to happen after each and every performance or only certain performances? How's that going to work? Well, after each and every performance, there will be a conversation with the audience and the actors will come out and Jeff will be there. Uh, But on Tuesday nights, we're going to have some celebrities, left, right, and center, on Saturday afternoons, we're actually going to have some objectivist scholars. So Tara Smith, Robert Mayu, Shoshana Knapp, Greg Shalmieri, Harry Benzwanger will come. And they'll, they'll really, it's not that they'll give a lecture, but they'll participate in, in giving their reactions, uh, which we think will be very stimulating. Right. No, that's, that sounds like it's going to be fun for everyone. That's the Saturday matinee performances, which will start when? On, on Saturdays? Uh, right, and you know we'll start right off on that uh, October fifth. I think is our first uh, Saturday, Saturday matinee. matinee. Okay. And I should say the show is rather short. The show runs about an hour and fifteen minutes. So you know, staying for an extra ten or fifteen minutes is really kind of fun. And so, with a show of that length, do you even have an intermission? Just a random question. There is no intermission. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. No, there, uh, the professionals have asked that, Amy, so you can feel comfortable. Uh, but, yes, there is no intermission. It's, it's in, in one act. And so how do people get tickets for the show, people who are interested to go and see? Thank you. Well, going to that uh, uh, anthemtheplay.com website is where you get the tickets. But just following us on Facebook, you know, if you can't come over here, friends in the tri-state, New York, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, New Jersey area, uh, letting them know uh, we're on Facebook and on Twitter. And uh, Steve Rogers, Amy, who you know has been really helping us with social media. So uh, people can really just help get the word out. And when we have uh, reviews or articles, uh, responding and commenting uh, on them is, is most welcome. Liking and sharing so, and liking and sharing. Do you think down the yeah. road there's ever going to be some sort of a, a DVD available of, of the production? or? Well, you know, the desire is obviously what's the next step for the life of it. So I would like yeah. love to have something like that uh, happen. And, you know, the truth is DVDs are going to go away, right? It's all going to be live. Sure, through, sure. Uh, yeah. You know, but uh, but I would love to try to do something with it. But that's sort of a, the next step. I'm so old-fashioned to talk about DVDs, much less I could say, you know, what about a VHS? Hey, 
Um, but, yeah, yeah. Well, I always say this because that's what people do to me. I say, well, could we send a DVD? And I said, well, you just put it online, you know. So. Here's a question. Yes. Oh, excuse me. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just asking if we had any callers or chat people. We do have a question from the chat. Again, if people oh. want to ask questions of Ann Chickalella, who's the director, or Jeff Brading, who's the adapter of the forthcoming off-Broadway production of a play based on Ayn Rand's anthem, go ahead and call now, 760-888-5817. And do make sure to press 1 to let me know that you have a question. I do have a question from Waldo in the chat room. Again, you can enter your questions in at the chat at blogtalkradio.com. Waldo asks, he says, did parents bring children to the play in Austin? And if so, how did they react to it? the children we yeah we didn't really have we had you know some young teenagers mm-hmm. who knew the script and and were involved in it but uh pa- you know parents sometimes actually bring kids to shakespeare uh but they uh, we didn't have many parents bringing younger kids to uh to anthem no J- jeff do you remember any younger kids um, i just I remember that, i mean kind of, there were uh plenty of uh young people of high school age that uh, right that came, and that was a, um, you know, a, a key audience that we're interested in reaching out to because of the popularity of the book Anthem as the subject of a major high school essay contest, which um, is promoted uh, throughout North America and the world. And that, right. um, Jeff, I think is, is, is that the, the biggest essay contest, or is one of the other books the biggest essay contest? No, I think that's the biggest uh of the uh, Ayn Rand Institute, in this case, for those who don't know, the Ayn Rand Institute produces a an annual essay contest uh, that covers the four novels, um, We the Living, Anthem, The Fountainhead, and Atlas Shrugged. I believe that's correct. Uh, but I right. certainly know that Anthem and The Fountainhead are the two mainstays of that uh, contest. And of, I think Anthem is the most popular book in that um uh, contest. Uh, I mean, I, I could I could see yeah. that as a teacher, as you know, as a teacher, I'd be more willing mm-hmm. to have my students participate in that one simply because the book is shorter, and then it allows mm-hmm. you to sign, you know, assign other titles during the course of a semester or school year or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um, now Waldo in the chat room is is responding. He says he asked about this because he read somewhere on the internet that Ayn Rand would have liked an animated Disney film for Anthem, and um, he was wondering if Ayn Rand believed that Anthem was a good fit for children. Well, I, I would say uh, yes, but I also think that animation is a good fit for adults uh, because animation is a really marvelous um, genre of filmmaking and one which I think would lend excellently um, to the uh, story in Anthem. And I know that I, that Ayn Rand herself you know, approached Walt Disney um, with the idea of doing Anthem as a uh, piece consisting of what she called very stylized drawings or or drawings of a certain style that were um, expressive of the the spirit of the book. And I think it would be a very effective way to present the ideas. To both I did want to just, as a sidebar, we do mm-hmm. have a full size projections in the play. So it's a very, uh, you know, sort of a contemporary, imaginative uh, approach to the play. 
but uh, we have a wonderful projection designer, Jason Thompson, uh, and uh, we'll have uh, the whole size of the stage uh, will include projections. So some sort of graphics or, or uh, mm-hmm. photos? Yeah. Or... Okay, okay. No, they're really drawing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, that sounds, you know, Jeff, uh, you know, again, we're, we're taking questions in the chat room over at blogtalkradio.com. So if anybody wants to chime in there with a question for Jeff or Ann or both, also you can call 760-888-5817. I had one question uh, for you, Jeff, if you wanted to talk uh-huh. about it a little. You you mentioned some rewriting that you did between the Anthem production and the New York production. Would you go mm-hmm. into the nature of that a little bit? Maybe what it was that you learned? Was there something that didn't work or you just got this idea you could improve it a certain way? Well, um, I guess I learned what was working and what could work more effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, uh, in the initial production in Austin in 2011, uh, I, you know, I had a chance to see the the basic story structure shake out. Now, I had to add some uh, action that was assigned to both liberty and equality, the two main characters in the show, that uh, enabled uh, us to manifest a plot line, which is crucial for the kind of theater that we're doing. And um, I saw that in the course of bringing Liberty out as a character, people were intrigued. People wanted to find out more about her. And what I've been able to do in this current production, um, which I'm um, looking forward to presenting to the world very shortly, is uh, another element of the story, which is the story of Liberty. And, um, and that story involves not just Liberty herself, but but others that are connected to her. So um, this is an amplification of something that was first uh, begun in Austin, but it's something that I think flows quite naturally out of the the fabric of what we prepared and originally presented. Now, did any of the the things that you drew upon, did you draw on Ayn Rand's archives, any notes that she made in writing the anthem in fleshing out liberty was there some things that she sort of left on the cutting room floor so to speak in in writing the novel well uh, i think that i um i had to draw implications i had to make inferences based on um what i saw of the character and what i know of other characters other female characters now the other play that i have a lot of experience with because i was one of um, the people that uh, initially presented it uh, for the first time anywhere um, in 1989, which which play was Ayn Rand's Ideal, and mm-hmm. I was very and I got really into that character, into the characters in that story, uh, and I think that began a, a close attention to all the characters that were developing in Ayn Rand's um, uh, literary world in the 1930s, and and I find. As time goes on, a lot of porousness between these characters. You know, their, char- their characters will introduce a, a, a career objective or a life. Kira, for instance, wants to, you know, is actually in effect a female um, version of Rourke, and career-wise in a way, because she's interested in building uh, aluminum bridges and skyscrapers. And uh, you know, you. You see in Anthem uh, elements of 
the territory of the fountainhead. Um, she's right, Ayn Rand is writing the larger work, and then she takes um, some weeks off uh, from the hard work of trying to plot the fountainhead to write anthem. So there's a lot of stuff that that uh, moves from one work to another, and knowing that territory fairly well, I was able to you know to tap into that. Also, there are revisions to Anthem, the, the novel. There's the original script, um, the handwritten draft. There are subsequent um, uh, uh, versions of the of the work on its way to being published in different uh, at different points throughout the 20th century. And the changes that were made from one version to another were were real uh, fuel for thought and. Uh, I was able, in some instances, to to take things that were cut for literary reasons and repurpose them dramatically, and that was very exciting to do. So, in effect, Ayn Rand was um, very much a part of the of the process of writing this, but in a very you know benevolent way. Um, in fact, uh, I think. I think what she wanted more than anything, and I'm, I don't want to make any presumptions here because obviously I didn't work with her, but mm-hmm. I know that in in the past when she was looking for writers to work with uh, on productions uh, such as, for instance, the, the adaptation of Atlas Shrugged, which she was working on at the end of her life, she took over the, the job of writing that partly because she couldn't find, or there, despite the fact that there were uh, so many talented writers in Hollywood, she couldn't find one that was really comfortable and willing to bring their total creativity to the the project. I don't think Ayn Rand was at all afraid of seeing someone take the material and repurpose it dramatically if it worked, if it made sense. And I yeah, I, and I as, think... as long as it's as long as it's true to the spirit of the work and you're doing it because the form in which you're adapting it necessitates dramatizing in a certain way. I mean, that's what you should be doing. Yeah. And, you know, I did that herself in her uh, teleplay uh, that was left unfinished at the time of her death for uh, a um, miniseries version of Atlas Shrugged. She introduced new characters into the work. Mm-hmm. And, Characters that actually didn't even exist culturally at the time of the uh, the writing of the book in the 40s and the 50s. Um, so there was this, you know, sense of adventure uh, in revisiting the material for me personally that took into account uh, some knowledge of her uh, Ayn Rand's literary development in general during the 30s, and also the specifics and details of of her process in writing uh, Anthem in particular. Now we've we've got you know, just a, a short time left of our first hour here, so I want to get information out to the people again. They can go to anthemtheplay.com, anthemtheplay.com, in order to get tickets. And people can also help get the word out through your Indiegogo campaign. Is that right, Anne? That's right. We are on Indiegogo uh, just for a few more days until the 21st. And there are also some terrific perks there. And we have T-shirts and mugs and hats. So go check that out. And I don't want to neglect, before we leave you, Amy, saying that this year is the 75th anniversary of the novel Anthem. So it turns out to be a wonderful uh, celebration uh, of this work. And thank you for being so generous and having such a a long and extensive conversation with us. 
thank you for coming on and telling us about it. It is one of the goals of this show to help preserve and revive the American sense of life. And I'm, you know, anticipating the type of reaction that your own had where he says, you know, I didn't know that I needed this. I think a lot of people will get a lot of spiritual fuel out of watching this play. So I'm glad to spread the word. I'm glad that you could join me today. Uh, thank you very much, Jeff and Ann. Thank you very thank much, you. Amy. Really enjoyed being here. Okay, thank you, and thank uh, we'll, you. Ta- we'll talk again, and I hope to see you in New York. So Bye. again, that was Ann Chickalella and Jeff Britting, and they are uh, respectively the director and the adapter of Anthem the Play. You can learn more about the play at anthemtheplay.com. This is Amy Peekoff, and you've been listening to Don't Let It Go Unheard. And I'm going to do, I mean, now I feel like I really have to pull out the Monty Python and now for something completely different because I want to go from that discussion, which was at times, you know, uh, technical and, and into some aspects of artistic adaptation that um, that I'm not always so familiar with. It's, it's a little bit far off the, the usual topic of this show, let's say. And I want to go to do some of our normal roundup of news stories. So if you want to follow along with me, on the stories that we're going to discuss here today, go to DontLetItGo.com and you can see the program notes at the bottom of the first post. The first post corresponds to today's show. You can also see, incidentally there, the links to Anthem the Play, um, where you can, I think also at the Anthem the Play site, you can find the link to the Indiegogo campaign. But it's AnthemThePlay.com. That's where you go and find out more about that upcoming off-Broadway production of a play based on Ayn Rand's anthem, which I was really glad to see is going to happen. So if you go to the program notes, you see that the first link that I have is to peakoff.com. Many of you might be familiar with and and or listeners to Leonard Peakoff's podcast that he releases every week on Mondays. This week, I actually went and recorded a podcast with him for the first time, and we spoke about the NSA, Snowden, a lot of privacy issues since that's what I specialize in. And I think that when that's released that you will find it edifying. There was actually two podcasts recorded. One where Leonard Peikoff himself just discusses all the things that the NSA is doing, his reaction to it, uh, his reaction to the justifications that they give for the NSA programs, and also his characterization of Snowden. So I think you'll be interested to turn uh, tune into that. And then he and I talk back and forth a bit about the legal justification for what the NSA has done, et cetera. And I I think you will enjoy that as well. Uh, Another thing that I'd like to tell you about, just as a a little program note and self-promotion bit, if you're on my blog at DontLetItGo.com, you'll see that the second post, the second most recent post, is a link to my three-lecture course called Toward a Society of Privacy, which was just, after last week's show, you know, towards the end of last week's show, I got an email that said that the Ayn Rand e-store, the Ayn Rand Institute's e-store, is now making available my course as an MP3 download. And the price is darn cheap. It's $2.75. So if you are interested in the topic of the nature of privacy, the current state of its legal protection, and my prescription for what I think is the proper legal protection for privacy, 
go ahead and check that out. The other thing, um, other than the nature of privacy, I also talk about the value of privacy. And I use Ayn Rand's works as illustrations in some places. And I also draw upon some research that's out there uh, in some of you know some contemporary works of research as well. So I think you'll enjoy it. Go ahead and check that out. The other things here, you may have seen this story on Drudge. The NSA, according to the Washington Post, the NSA broke privacy rules thousands of times per year. There was an internal NSA audit that was dated 2012, May 2012, which identifies 2,776 so-called incidents or violations of the rules or court orders for surveillance of Americans or foreign targets in the United States from April 2011 through March 2012. And again, you can find the links to all the stories I discussed today at my blog, don'tletitgo.com. But this is from the Washington Post, and the date is August 15th, just yesterday. It says that the NSA has broken the privacy rules or overstepped its legal authority thousands of times each year since Congress granted the agency broad new powers in 2008, according to an internal audit, says most of the infractions involve unauthorized surveillance of Americans or foreign intelligence targets in the United States. And if you read down into the story further, you see something very disturbing, which is that they say the reason that this happens uh, you know, they, here, let me just give you an example. It says, it says, in one instance, the NSA decided that it need not report the unintended surveillance of Americans. Now, what was the example? There was an interception of a large number of calls placed from Washington when a programming error confused the U.S. area code 202 for 20, which is the international dialing code for Egypt, according to a quality assurance review that was not distributed to the NSA oversight staff. So this was a huge error. A ton of phone calls were unintentionally intercepted by our government simply because of a typo. And then they talk about another example where, um, you know, sometimes it's, it's just it's just a typo here or there, and then suddenly the NSA has your email unintentionally. Now, you might think that there is a problem with a system that allows the NSA itself to enter the data into a computer program of some kind and then suddenly get access to these phone calls and emails, that maybe you would like the NSA to give over the information to the private company and then the private company to be a quality check on the request and then be able to either give the NSA the information or say, hey, there's something wrong here. Why did you put area code 202? Isn't that, you know, the Washington, D.C. area code? Do you really need the phone calls of all these people in Washington, D.C. versus Egypt? So you would think. But, I mean, so it's just, it's disturbing that they have this type of access such that when they are making the inevitable area, uh, errors, errors that government bureaucracy does, typos of all kinds, that suddenly they're listening to Americans' phone calls. I think that they've got way too much power when that is going on. So um, that's one of our wonderful privacy-related headlines. Another follow-up that I wanted to do on a story from last week is about LavaBit. And if you remember, we discussed last week LavaBit shrugging, so to speak, saying that they would rather shut down 
then give the government what it was requesting, in effect, although they're dancing around because they can't really talk about it. This week there is a story about the founder of Lava Bit. His name is Ladar Levison. And he says, oh, God, I'm sorry about my audio there, guys. I've got the ad uh, starting up here. But he says that the government has power to take all your money and freedom. All your money and freedom the government has the power to do. It says, Ladar Levison, the, the founder of email service reportedly used by Edward Snowden, joined HuffPost Live Wednesday to discuss his decision to shut down his company, LavaBit. The Levison noted he's not at liberty to reveal details about his case or acknowledge the role of U.S. government in the shutdown of his company. Levison did tell host Mike Sachs, quote, our federal government has the power to take all of your money and your freedom, and they've shown no shame in using those powers to get what they want and to punish people who speak out against them, unquote. End quote. And then he, uh, he continues, they say, he says, I think the, the I think, he says, I kind of think, excuse me, he says, I kind of think the only reason I'm not in jail right now is because of all the media attention, end quote. Now, if he thinks that media attention is going to prevent him from being thrown in jail, I don't think that that's the case any more than it would prevent Snowden from being put in jail, any more that it prevented Nikul Nikula, the, you know, the move, uh, the movie uh, creator, the one who created that movie that did not cause the Benghazi attacks, he's in jail. He had a lot of media attention. It still happened. So I, I don't know. There must be some other reason. You know why it is, I think? I think it's that this particular story uh, is causing the government to tread a little bit lightly because they know that people are not happy about the surveillance of Americans. But, you know, if, if this is what he's saying and he's biting his tongue a little bit because he's not supposed to talk, you can only imagine the types of pressure that the federal government is bringing to bear on Levison. You know, they have the power to take all your money and your freedom, and they've shown no shame in using those powers to get what they want. I hope that Levison has a good attorney. I would love to see this play out in court. I would love to see this play out in court in a way that gets rid of the third-party doctrine. If you could bring that before the Supreme Court, as I write in my forthcoming article, which I'll tell you where it's going to be published soon. I think that the Supreme Court might be ready to hear some of this. Uh, Justice Sotomayor in particular requested last year maybe a revisiting of the third party doctrine. I think people are ready for it. The Supreme Court might be ready for it. And, you know, the government pressuring companies to give up this information without so much as a search warrant, I think is uh, horrible. Of course, they could get a search warrant uh, now, I guess, because they've go ahead and, you know, they've charged Snowden with a crime. And if indeed they are Snowden's email provider, get the search warrant. So it may not even come into play in this case. But just wanted to give you that little update. In terms of Snowden himself, news that came out that's broken recently, not, you know, such a big deal uh, for us probably. I think we already kind of knew this, that he had a long-term plan. But it says Snowden dis uh, downloaded NSA secrets while working for Dell. So the Booz Allen job that they talked about recently in all the news stories, all the attention has been put in, you know, put on Booz Allen. It turns out that Snowden had been downloading information about these secret NSA programs for probably a year or more uh, while he was working for Dell Incorporated before he transferred to Booz Allen. So um, 
this was not some sort of whim, some sort of irrational whim on the part of Snowden. It was a calculated plan to leak to us things that he found disturbing. And as I said, I think when you hear Leonard Peikoff on well, you know, how it is that you characterize Snowden, I think that a lot of people, at least who listen to this show, are, are going to like it. There's going to be other people who probably won't agree with what Leonard Peikoff has to say about Snowden. Um, so that's kind of the latest on the, the NSA. You know, in terms of the, the story about NSA breaking its privacy rules thousands of times per year, the audit fines, et cetera, they're focusing so much on here are the rules, here are the laws that are written, the FISA Amendments Act, the Patriot Act, the court orders that were issued pursuant to the FISA Amendments Act or the Patriot Act and how they violated those orders, right? Still, they seem to all be in the realm of not requiring probable cause, not requiring particularized suspicion. So so imagine, you know, all of this stuff doesn't require even that. You don't have to have these warrants. All you have to have is a judge authorization based on something less than those things. No, you may be some sort of reasonable suspicion. No particularized suspicion, but you have this broad swath of people that you get this authorization to collect data on, right? Statutes are not even, you know, giving you that high a bar before the government can go. And if the court, if the, excuse me, if the government is violating the authorizations that they have pursuant to this statute, that means in terms of violating the spirit of the Fourth Amendment, they're doing much worse. You know, this idea of focusing just, oh, they broke the rules. The rules have such a shaky, invalid foundation that it's not just the breaking the rules. It is a complete, complete violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's it's, it's a total, uh, total rejection of what it means to protect Americans from unreasonable searches and seizures, uh, you know, which, again, I think, it, it, you know, th- this is what your choice is with the Fourth Amendment, right? You say, look, we got to have the government able to gather evidence without being given permission, right? If you said the only time the government can gather evidence when they're, is when they're given permission, that's never going to work because you're a criminal. You just say, no, I don't give you permission. So that's ridiculous. Any government that is going to have power to objectively determine whether a crime has been committed is going to have to have the power to get evidence at times without permission. However, it can't be anything goes, right? It can't just be whatever the government wants. It could just go searching and seizing and doing all this stuff, arresting you. No, there's got to be limits. What is a rational objective limit? They've got to have some level of evidence that there is reason to search a particular place, reason to seize a particular item, reason to arrest a particular person. There's got to be some evidence. Probable cause is the way that we traditionally phrase that level of evidence that they're supposed to have. It sounds like something we would like to preserve. There also should be particularized suspicion that it relates to a particular person's potential commission of a crime, right? You can't just go willy-nilly and say, oh, well, well, you know, we think somewhere in this Verizon subscriber database is evidence. No, you need to be more particular than that. You can't just, you know, collect this broad swath of data. Um, you know, they, they always talk about, well, in order to have 
the haystack, when, in which you're going to find the needle. You're going to find the needle in the haystack. You have to have the haystack. But government does not have a right to take all of our metadata and put it into that haystack. That is not something government has a right to do. Government needs to have particularized suspicion linking the collection of certain evidence or the searching of a particular area, et cetera, with a particular person or group, you know, some dis, you know, discrete group of people, their potential commission of a crime. So you have to have that level of suspicion. Probable cause, I think, is, is very good because you are talking about relinquishing a person's right to property or interfering with their freedom of contract. Probable cause seems like, you know, the right way to phrase that. I, I wouldn't change it, so to speak. And then particularize. It's got to be particularized suspicion. You can't just say, oh, let's just grab everybody at Verizon. Anybody who subscribes to Verizon, yeah, it's got to be in there somewhere. No, this this is not right. So, um you know, this idea, well, they broke the rules. The rules already break the rules, you know, in my idea. If you're going to have the proper rules to govern government's collection of evidence, the rules that the NSA has and has broken already break the proper rules. So it, it, it's, you know, it's just one outrage after another. So we'll we'll go on. <laughs> we'll go on to another story here. If you do want to call in and express your outrage about the latest of the NSA or talk about Snowden or talk about Ladar Levison of Lavabit, you can call 760-888-5817. I'm going to go on to something that will maybe make you even more upset. And you might remember a story that broke either late last week or early this week, and it was about Obama deciding not to enforce another portion of Obamacare. So remember already they're going to delay the employer mandate. There was uh, certain enforcement things that were going to be delayed. You're going to be on your honor or something for the first year. I can't even keep track of the way that Obama has been selectively rewriting this legislation. But this week, the one that I heard about and that I posted on the Don't Let It Go on Her page on Facebook is that Obama wants to um, delay the out-of-pocket caps that it's putting on insurance policies that are available to be offered legally or through the Obamacare exchange for the coming year. Now, I have my own thought about why it is that they're doing this, right? Remember that recently, and Heritage, uh, the Heritage Foundation is one of the places that has issued a report on this. I remember a couple weeks ago it was being passed around, and I passed it around as well. Heritage had a state-by-state estimate of how much insurance premiums would be going up under Obamacare. So these reports are coming out. People are realizing how much pain they're going to experience because of all the requirements under the Obamacare legislation, not to mention paying for all those layers of bureaucracy that we're going to be paying for under Obamacare. So I think one of the things they thought about is they said, well, you know, one of the things that are going to make insurance premiums go up a lot is a cap on out-of-pocket expenses. One of the things that Obama wants to do is make it so that there can be no cap on out-of-pocket expenses under your insurance. Right now, you can choose, if you want, to buy a cheaper policy that will have a cap on out-of-pocket expenses. Suppose you think, okay, well, I don't think I'm ever going to have anything more than $200,000 lifetime expenses. Or maybe I might have more, but that's really all I can afford now. I'd like to afford a cheaper policy and 
gamble in effect. And, and remember, back to my discussions with Jerome Brooke, what is an insurance policy? It is, in effect, gambling. You're paying a bunch of money to an insurance company to insure you against a certain risk, which is that you're going to have these high medical bills. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And all of us are supposed to be free to take the sort of gamble that that, that we want Maybe we want to take the big gamble and not even buy an insurance policy at all. We want to pay out of pocket for our health care. We want to self-insure, whatever it is. Obama is slowly taking away those choices, or actually not so slowly, with all one fell swoop. But now he's deciding, well, I don't want to take all those choices away with one fell swoop. I think I'll just rewrite the legislation a little bit here and there such that we'll just uh, delay portions of it. So the latest portion is they say, look, we're not going to have these caps on out-of-pocket expenses. So what will you be doing? You'll be spending more still. You're going to still pay a much higher insurance premium because of the other parts of Obamacare that are under, you know, that are going into effect. But you're not going to even get that cap on out-of-pocket expenses. So you're going to be spending more money on insurance. You're going to be less able to save your own money to pay those out-of-pocket expenses, we're all going to be poorer because Obamacare is going to destroy the economy, so you're again going to be less able to pay those out-of-pocket expenses. It's a complete and total mess, and, and again, I urge people to join the, the you know, the defundant campaign. I don't want to go through that whole spiel again, but I have defended the, you know, the defundant campaign for the last couple shows, and I, I continue to do so. Now, what I have here on the Don't Let It Go, on, uh, Don't Let It Go blog, the program notes, is an opinion piece from George Will at the Washington Post, and he writes that Obama's unconstitutional steps are worse than Nixon's. And one of the things he talks about is this rewriting of the Affordable Care Act. The president is literally rewriting a piece of legislation all by himself. And here's from George Will. He says, explaining his decision to unilaterally rewrite the Affordable Care Act, Obama said, quote, I didn't simply choose to ignore the statutory requirement for beginning in 2014 the employer mandate to provide employees with health care. No, quote, this was in consultation with businesses, end quote. So, no, it wasn't just me on my own. I spoke with businesses. Now, where in the Constitution does it say that if you speak with businesses as a president, it's okay, you can rewrite a piece of legislation on your own? Here's Obama. He says, quote, in a normal political environment, it would have been easier for me to simply call up the speaker and say, you know what, this is a tweak that doesn't go to the essence of the law. It looks like there may be some better way to do this. Let's make a technical change to the law. That would be the normal thing that I would prefer to do. But we're not in a normal atmosphere around here when it comes to Obamacare. We did have the executive authority to do so, and we did so, end quote. Um, now, let's just like parse words here. He says, in a normal political environment, how about a constitutional, a true-to-the-constitution political environment? And then when he talks about the fact that this is a technical change to the law, it's not a technical change to the law. Technical change is you made a typo in the law or you had you know, one agency reporting to this other agency and it didn't make sense. That's technical. Technical is not saying, oh, where the, there's this whole big mandate that's in it and people are really griping about this mandate that it's really going to cause a lot of pain. And so let's just put it off till after the election. That is not a technical change in the law. President Obama, it is not. 
Um, so here's continuing with George Will. He says, serving as props in the scripted charade of White House news conferences, journalists did not ask the pertinent question, where does the Constitution confer upon presidents the executive authority to ignore the separation of powers by revising laws, end quote. This is really, really disgusting. So he, he goes on and talks about, you know, when is it normal to do this? The laws are supposed to be faithfully executed by a president. Um, you know, it, it's it's not normal. And then he says, when was it normal? You know, when, when do we have the normal environment? Um, you, the Constitution does not confer on presidents, writes Will, the power to rewrite laws if they decide the change is a tweak not involving the law's essence. Um you know, it's not like you could just do that. The presidents don't have a line item veto for that particular reason. I mean, this is in effect giving him a line item veto, which we know that the president doesn't have. And it's not even a line item veto. I mean, it's it's a line item red pen, at least with a line item veto. That means they actually have to scratch out an entire thing. He doesn't want to get rid of this mandate. Oh, he just wants to tweak it and delay it for a little while longer. And then, of course, there is this latest of, of the last week. Uh, no no caps on out-of-pocket costs. So Obama is screwing us over, and he doesn't care because he's on vacation in Martha's Vineyard, and he's spewing apparently incoherent statements of foreign policy, or so says our next story, which we'll get to here in a second. If you did have any comments on the stories that we're talking about today, you can call 760-888-5817. I'll be glad to take your call I unfortunately don't have Bosch Faustin here in the studio with me today, and I always like bouncing stories off of him, so feel free if you'd like to call in. Now, um, in terms of the story that we we're talking about here, uh, it seems that Eileen and Liberty and Reason agree uh, that we need to be having the NSA constrained more than we do. You know, particular, you have to have suspicions particular to a person, a place, a time frame, particular nature of the possible crime. Yeah, we need much more particulars than we do. Now, you know, you need particularized suspicion about the person, a particular person. And when you have a warrant, the warrant is particularly supposed to describe the place to be searched, what they expect to find there, how it's supposed to be relevant to a crime. None of these things the NSA comes close to having in any of this stuff. So the, like I said, the rules break the rules. And then she talks about, uh, Eileen talks about the Obamacare legislation here. So much for keeping the Cadillac plans, unless you were working for Washington. Eileen, I think I spoke about this last week because I was surprised in reading one of the articles preparing for last week's show to discover that you really can't keep your plan. Um, as far as I know, under the legislation, if you do have a plan that you like, you may not be able to keep it longer than through the year 2014. Certain plans you will no longer be able to keep. And I, I think that's uh, truly, truly disgusting. Hi, who's this? Hi, Amy. It's Debbie. Hey, Debbie. Yay. Long time no here. Good to hear yeah. you. <laughs> Yeah, um yeah, you too. So what what about uh who who would you like to come down on? The NSA in particular, Obama, should we just focus on Obama? He should be impeached, right? That's the the question uh, of the day everyone. Been, yeah, that's been true for so long though. I mean, it's <laughs> that's nothing new. Uh but yeah, I I I've 
heard that the reason he delayed this implementation of the the cap on or the lack of a cap on total spending on someone's policy is that barring that cap would force premiums higher because the insurance companies, you know, they make their calculation and if there's no limit on what can be spent on you or, or no limit on your out of pocket, then right. that's gonna cost them more. And and that he had delayed it deliberately until something like December two thousand fourteen in order to have some of the damage pushed back until after the election in the hope that the Democrats can take the House and then they'll be Do even more damage. The- do even more damage, right? They they they've got they want yeah. to do even more to us. Yeah, and, and you know what? That's so evil is that they know it's harmful to people. They know that it's harmful to people and that's why they're delaying it until after the election. No, and, and you know, this is you know, he's got these insurance companies. I'm sure, you know, there's some sort of agreements that they have with them and stuff, such that the insurance companies aren't allowed to scream about this. But the insurance companies are being forced to take bad gambles all over the place. And the, you know, they can't say to the insurance company, Well, you know, you're supposed to put a, co- a cap on these out of pocket costs and not raise insurance premiums. Of course they have to raise insurance premiums if there's going to be a lifetime cap on out-of-pocket medical expenses because, it again, it's a gamble. They have these actuarial experts who calculate the risk of certain people, whether they're, you know, what age they are, smokers, non-smokers, whatever, and what their average lifetime out-of-pocket expenses or, you know, lifetime medical expenses will be. And then they decide to set the premiums accordingly based on whatever cap it is the government's telling them. And they know. I mean, everyone's already screaming about the increase in rates, about companies going out of business. And I think they just know that it's going to be even worse when these caps kick in. And they say, okay, well, let's let's just delay that. Let's just make the American people love us even more. I I don't think it's working. I mean, what was it? I, I think I saw a poll that Obama's approval rating on the economy was something like 30%. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right, and I'm shocked by that number. I mean, I'm shocked that it's that high. Right. (laughs) You know what it is? It must be the people who are getting government assistance. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah." because there's an increasing enrollment in food stamp programs, of course, heavily advertised. Our tax dollars not only pay for the food stamp programs, but they pay for advertising to encourage people to go on the programs. So maybe it's all those people who are on some sort of government assistance. They say, well, I don't feel any pain. Everything's cool. I like Obama. I saw him on Jay Leno. He was funny, you know, and they're uh-huh. brain dead. I, I, I don't know. They must be brain dead. Amy, I heard something really disturbing along that line on the radio this morning. I heard an audio of a kid praying to Obama or saying oh. God gave Obama special powers to give us all kinds of good things and take care of us. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that kid didn't come up with that. I'm sure it came from his parents, but, I mean, it was just so disturbing. So, so yeah, I think that's his constituency. That and all the people that work for the government, which is probably a significant number of people nowadays. And th- This idea of, of praying to a president is... I mean, Obama must have gotten some chuckle out of it while he was posing for his weird golf picture in Martha's Vineyard or whatever he's been doing for the the last week or so. But, you know, this guy, and, and he's so brazen, 
And it doesn't matter. I mean, you can't even make fun of them anymore. We've learned this week with the rodeo clown. If you try to make fun of Obama, people will call for you to be fired. Plus, there's going to, you know, they want to have a huge federal investigation because somebody, you know, posed as Obama and made fun of him. This is truly horrible. I mean, I'm going to continue to criticize Obama week after week until I'm not allowed to anymore. But, uh, you know, it's so ominous when you look at Ladar Levison saying, you know, government has all these powers to take away your money and freedom. You've got the, you know, people calling for the government to bear down on rodeo clowns of all things. It's getting truly scary. And at the same time, Obama does. George Will is right. Obama keeps grabbing more power. And I think it goes back to what Ron Rotunda said in, I would say, a fairly mild way in the Washington Times, which is that it's time to have a select committee and to actually start investigation on the road to possible impeachment, particularly when you've got this man rewriting laws. I mean, he's literally, I mean, that's not the law that they passed. The law that they passed is not the one that says, oh, well, we'll time it this way and then we'll have it that way and stuff. Um, Whatever wimpy Republicans voted for it may not have voted for it. You know, maybe at least they have party loyalty and hopeful, you know, to hoping to win elections left in them. They don't have a spine of any kind. They have no principles. But at least if they saw that there was deliberate tweaking in order for Democrats to win elections, they might have stood up to that. What do you think, Deborah? I don't know. I don't think they really uh, probably not. They they just don't really have the spine to stand up to anything. I mean, there are horrible things going on right now, which is, I mean, I think the NSA issue is, is far worse than this issue with Obamacare being tweaked by Obama. Um, but yet they don't really do much about that. It just doesn't seem to matter what the left does. Boehner keeps licking Obama's boots, and uh, even when Obama kicks him in the teeth, like he's blaming Boehner essentially for the fact that he quote-unquote had to tweak the bill himself because they're not in a regular legislative environment, or what was the phrase that you used exactly? Something like normal, a normal normal legislative environment, you know? All right. And he was referring specifically to Boehner, even though Boehner is just like his loyal servant. But his he lapdog, keeps coming back yeah. for more. Yeah. No. Yeah. But yeah, Boehner is no bar to anything. And as far as I know, Boehner is what he's getting poised to give all the Democrats what they want on immigration. He's being bullied on that. I mean, he's he's basically worthless. And that that was you know, going to be kind of my next topic. I I felt like we had to at least do a little bit of of justice to the story in Egypt. Violence is spreading horribly in Egypt. The last count that I read is that over 600 have been killed in, uh, you know, these demonstrations. And I guess the military firing on people in the demonstrations as well. But did you watch Obama give his little press conference about what's going on in Egypt from Martha's Vineyard. Apparently he took a little break from all his playing golf and hanging out in multi-million dollar mansions and all that kind of stuff in order to give a little statement on it. What did you, did you check it out or no? Happily I missed that because I was probably at work. <laughs> it was today, it, right? I, I don't know if it was today or if it was yesterday. What I've got is, Yeah, no, it was actually yesterday. I think it was yesterday. But um, what I've got is a Fox News story in which John Bolton, who is terrible on the NSA and Snowden, but is good on foreign policy and and on criticizing Obama's foreign policy in particular, 
he says that Obama is essentially incoherent because here's a quote from Obama. He says, America cannot determine the future of Egypt. But what do we do? We give money to people in Egypt, and that money has the effect of helping one side over the other and therefore of fueling the battle. So I mean, if he's truly going to be uh, you know, consistent, if he's going to be consistent with this idea that we can't determine the future of Egypt, I mean, he's just saying that because things are going wrong. If he was still on the winning team and everything was peaceful and nobody was dying, he'd say, oh, I'm taking credit for the Arab Spring in Egypt. You know, he, he condemns the violence in Egypt, et cetera. But as Rand Paul said, according to this Fox News story, uh, he says, you know, Obama's administration continues to send billions of taxpayer dollars to help pay for all this stuff that's going on in Egypt. I don't know how you make sense of it. And and Bolton, you know, in his typically strong language, says that the you know the policy is completely incoherent. And you've got another writer over at uh, his name is James Traub. He's over at the Foreign Policy uh, ForeignPolicy.com is is the name of the publication. And he says that what Obama's policy amounts to is speak softly and carry no stick. You know the the <laughs> tradition is you're supposed to speak softly yeah. but carry but carry a big stick, right? No, speak softly and carry mm-hmm. no stick at all. And that's what he does, you know. We're just going to engage everybody. We're going to throw them money and I guess hope that everything turns out for the best. I mean, that's the that's the benign characterization of what he's doing. I think the the more accurate characterization of what he's doing is that he's actively supporting the enemies of freedom over there. Yeah, well, that would certainly not. I mean, that would certainly be consistent with uh, with what his policy generally is. I, you know, but I wish he'd be that aloof and and non invasive in terms of what goes on in the United States as he is about what goes on in Egypt. Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, that would be that would be great. Uh, now in the chat room, I'm seeing if we're getting. Yeah, Waldo mentions that every country get aid, gets aid. Yeah, almost any country that asks for it gets some kind of aid, and we don't seem to have any moral litmus test at all. And one thing that I'm noticing here in the in the article of, of Traub, which ties into a theme that I want to talk about in a minute, is that uh, Samantha Power, who's a, a senior White House official, um, and, and now she's become U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, she used to say, we're all consequentialists now. And she says, that is, outside advocates and activists, you have an obligation to choose words, policies according to the consequences, not just according to some abstract moral scale, etc. Uh, this idea of that we're we're supposed to be pragmatists—that's um, what we're supposed to do. Um, it, 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 I, I don't even think he's a, he's a pragmatist. I think that he is deliberately choosing to support the enemies of, of freedom overseas. I think that that's a deliberate policy. But again, if you look at him benignly, he's this person who is a pragmatist, you know, he just says, at the moment, it seems that throwing money over here is going to have the right effect. Oh, it doesn't have the right effect? Well, let's not even say that we're trying to achieve a certain effect in Egypt. Let's say that we are not able to determine what Egypt does. I mean, isn't that what you were trying to do by giving them money, Mr. President? You were trying to push the fate of Egypt in one direction or the other. No comment. Of course, he's not going to tell you what he says. So um, he's being characterized as completely incoherent in foreign policy. In domestic policy, he has said repeatedly he's just going to take action on his own. He's not going to bother 
with Congress, even in an area traditionally reserved for Congress, such as writing legislation. He just rewrites it on whim. It's really bad. What do we have as our alternatives? Did you look at Chris Christie this week, Deborah, at all, or no? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I heard that he's making noise about a potential run for president, which I had expected, so I'm not too surprised about that, but I don't um, know of anything specific. Well, I'm going to go ahead and, and talk a little bit about that and with a little bit of a hint, which is that he also considers himself to be a pragmatist. So, you know, in the most benevolent, you say, okay, Obama's a pragmatist. And then you go and you say, oh, well, I'll just have the Republican version of Obama. We'll just have somebody else who extols pragmatism. That's awesome, right? But anything you want to say before I, I let you go, Deborah? Uh, no. Okay. Okay, thank you for calling in, Deborah, and thanks for listening. It was good to hear your voice again. And, uh, I'm I'm glad that the new time is making it a little bit better for for you to join in on the conversation here. So here's the article. This is actually from Time Magazine. And Bosch, if he was here, would say, what does it say about the fact that you've got this leftist magazine, Time, being the one that has this exclusive coverage of Chris Christie laying out his argument for 2016, so to speak. They say, in a a well-received speech, The New Jersey governor makes his case and has harsh words for potential rivals. And it says, uh, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie laid out his ideas for saving the Republican Party at a gathering of the Republican National Committee on Thursday in remarks that offered sharp criticism of rival Republicans and a window into his own potential 2016 platform. It says, Christie spoke at length about his record in New Jersey, you know, emphasizing his accomplishments, teacher benefit reform, Uh, bring down the budget deficit. Of course, he probably didn't talk about appointing Muslims to the Supreme Court bench and stuff like that. You know, he wouldn't want to talk about that, but whatever. Um, It says, quote, he was highlighting his record in New Jersey, what he has next for his campaign, et cetera, said a former Romney strategist, Russ Schreifer. Um, According to several sources, his remarks included jabs at at least two other potential candidates. He says, I'm not going to be one of those people who goes and calls our party stupid, he said in a rebuke to Jindal, I don't have any, uh, you know, hopes for Jindal in particular. So I don't. Yeah, calling the party stupid is probably not the way to go. I might agree there. Um, and then, then he said though, he says we need to stop na- na- uh, excuse me navel gazing. He said there's nothing wrong with our principles. We need to focus on winning again. There's too much at stake for this to be an academic exercise. We need to win and govern with authority and courage. It says Christie also appeared to slam Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, with whom he publicly battled last month over the GOP's foreign policy direction. Uh, Christie says, quote, we are not a debating society. He says, we are a political operation that needs to win. He says, see, I'm in this business to win, he continued. I'm in it to win. I think that we have some folks who believe that our job is to be college professors. College professors are fine, I guess. Being a college professor is, you know, they basically spout out ideas, but nobody ever does anything about them. For our ideas to matter, we have to win, because if we don't win, we don't govern. And if we don't govern, all we do is shout into the wind. So basically he's saying, forget all these ideas, these abstract ideas. They can't really win right now. I'm about winning. Throw those abstract ideas out the window. Um, 
The emphasis, they say, is on electability. The whole pitch is that you're trying to win. Basically, he's looking, you know, he, he is himself being a pragmatist. That's really what he's about. And, you know, what are you going to get when you are a pragmatist? If you go back to read James, and this is one thing that I did for one of my papers. I have a paper called Pragmatism and Privacy, shameless plug, shameless plug. But I talk about how the right to privacy grew out of pragmatism. And in order to really try to get at the root of pragmatism, I read some James and I tried to find out what does William James think makes something good according to pragmatism. And if you read, if you really dig in, and I have the citation in the paper, Pragmatism and Privacy, you can go find it. James said, what is good according to pragmatism is simply one thing, satisfying demand. The good means to satisfy demand. Somebody who is a pragmatist, who rejects ideology as Christie is doing here, is saying basically, I will do whatever it takes to be in power, to win, whichever way the wind blows. Principles be damned, ivory tower intellectual, et cetera, et cetera. He's basically saying people don't need ideology. All we have to do is go with what works. And again, if you're going the pragmatic route, it's going to turn into satisfying demand. Whoever demands the loudest, whatever constituency demands the loudest, that's the way that Christie's going to go. He's just trying to be popular. That's all he's trying to do. There is nothing there, nothing, nothing at all. So if this idea is, you know, we're going to replace the consequentialists with this guy, the pragmatist, it's the same poison. It's a it's another version of the same poison. I have no hope for him at all. Now let's take a look at the um, the response. Right, we've got a response from. Now I'm trying to think here. I think that I have been duped in Safari a little bit because I think Safari. Yeah, Safari killed my URL window. I don't know why it did that. That's very mean of it. Um, let's see. Let me get a new window entirely. Yeah, I got a pop-up window and it killed my URL window. Um, okay, don't let it go. I got to go to my links. I'm sorry, people. I think a pop-up spam window killed my URL window, which is really mean. So I have to open a new window each time to get where I'm going. This is not good. I'll have to quit Safari entirely and start over. Okay, what have we got here? So what the thing I wanted to talk about was a Rand Paul staffer who slams Christie because of this speech. They called the speech content-free. An advisor to Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, again, you go to don'tletitgo.com for this story, but this is from the uh, TPM Livewire, TPM Livewire. And it says, an advisor to Senator Rand Paul on Thursday dismissed Chris Christie's speech at a luncheon for the Republican National Committee in which the governor argued that the GOP needs to govern rather than brainstorm. Quote, he says, I think that we have some folks who believe that our job is to be college professors. Again, again, so they put the quotation here. And then here's the advisor to Rand Paul. He says, so if I translate Governor Christie correctly, we shouldn't be the party of ideas. Paul advisor Doug Stafford wrote CNN in an email. We shouldn't care what we stand for, or even if we stand for anything, we reject that idea. Content-free so-called pragmatism is the problem, not the solution, end quote. And I say here, here, I often disagree with some of Rand Paul's ideas, 
but at least he's for the idea that we have to have ideas as opposed to Christie, who is explicitly abandoning ideas. We are human beings. We need to live by principle. We have a conceptual faculty that requires that we don't face every new you know, every new situation like a baby who's never seen this before. We need to have principles in our mind to guide our conduct. Just try to go around a whole day not drawing upon your idea of right and wrong in your mind, the set of principles by which you live. Imagine a government that tried to do that explicitly. I mean, of course, Christie himself has a philosophy. He can't avoid it. Nobody can avoid having a philosophy. Um, but, the, you know, this idea that you're going to explicitly, explicitly reject it, I would say that Rand Paul's advisor here is 100% correct to call it out as pragmatism. And again, what does a pragmatist end up doing? At the end, all a pragmatist does is satisfy the demand of people who shout what they want to uh, from the world. Let me go ahead and take a call that I have here. I've probably been going on a little bit too long. I'm trying to click and put this person live and then unmute. Here it goes. Hi, who's this? This is Ed. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, except for that I'm seeing that Chris Christie, insofar as he is the front runner, is not providing much alternative to Obama at the moment. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure how things are going to go. I mean, I, I, we said last week about uh, you know um, the weird way the primaries work and and uh, how you can get kind of weird weird results. And I do think that the the establishment Republicans are probably going to rally around Christie, which means he's going to get a lot of money. He's going to get a lot of media exposure. Um, he's going to probably lose some weight due to the surgery, uh, get more in shape. I mean, he's mm-hmm. uh, he, he's going to be very powerful, and and he has a kind of a a bully kind of a personality, which I think uh, appeals to a certain segment of the population. Whereas, you know. Um, you know, Rand Paul is certainly not a bully, and 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 well, and Ted Cruz is a good lawyer, though he could he'll do he'll rip him to pieces in debates. Uh, let's let's hope. I mean, um, that's really that's really what I'm looking forward to is is you know the the debates where they show how bankrupt intellectually Chris Christie actually is, and I hope that we have an audience that is able to take it in and appreciate it. Yeah, I, I think I think it's possible. Um, I did want to. Uh, have two quick comments on the previous stories. I did call in earlier, but uh, you were talking on Egypt. Um, I, you know, Egypt is not that complicated a situation. There are three factions in Egypt. There mm-hmm. is the army, which controls about 40% of the economy and is entirely corrupt. There is the urban, mostly pro-Western liberal, um, you know, youth and and professional. And they have no power. And then there's the um, Muslim Brotherhood and associated groups who want to institute Sharia. And so there's these three factions. And, and you know, the coup against Mubarak was the Muslim Brotherhood and the liberals ganging up against the army. And uh, Morsi got elected. And then the liberals felt betrayed because Morsi uh, basically took on dictatorial powers for himself. And they, you know, they and the army kicked Morsi out. And now they're they and the army are together in a very uneven alliance, right, in the sense that the army has no real philosophy or governing 
Uh, right, they're they're the they're the pragmatists. They're the they're the pragmatists they, over there. In essence, they just right? want they just want the power and their and their forty percent cut of everything. So I yeah. mean, you know, our our foreign policy was is ridiculous. Of course, I mean, we should we should have six months ago when Morsi started ruling by decree, basically declared that that Morsi himself had had done a coup and stopped the aid. Uh, whereas now, you know, the military, and they're not good guys, nobody's good guys, not even the liberals are good guys, but they're better. Um, I, I don't know what you do now. I mean, it's just such a, a from the American perspective. Certainly um, you don't, it, it, you don't, certainly what you don't do is you don't throw money at any of them. Right. I mean, you stand, you say, look, Egyptians, we're in favor of individual rights and a government that respects rights, especially uh, free speech and, and freedom of religion, and you you institute a government like that, and we'll be happy to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, you know, from the real politic perspective, uh, what they really don't want Egypt doing is um, is breaking the peace with Israel. I mean, that that's because Egypt is not is not a a, a strong power, but you know they have 80 million people and Israel has six and it's uh that those are those are tough odds i know israel has done well against it in the past but um i think they just want to keep the peace anybody who's in egypt in power who says they're not going to break the peace with israel i think that's essentially the american foreign policy establishment's primary goal with regard to egypt right um, right but I, I mean, I I don't know that that was Obama's particular goal in supporting Morsi, though, right? Uh, no, I think Obama himself is pro-Muslim Brotherhood. But I think right. the American foreign po- policy establishment, you know, the right. bureaucrats, the the think tanks, they 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 want the peace. And uh, the final comment is, I want you to do an hour on your privacy thing because I, I I listened to your course last. <laughs> I listened to your course last weekend. I have a bunch of questions and some comments, but it's too late now to get them all in. So think about uh, sometime in the future doing a, a an hour, uh, you know, office hours where the professor answers her students' questions on uh, privacy laws. That okay, would be, maybe uh, that'd be fun, and I would participate. Okay, definitely. Maybe we'll do a, a special show on that for people who are particularly interested. Also, after I uh, make my paper publicly available, that would be a good time to do that. But people could read it and ask questions about that if, if they were so inclined as well. So sure. that would be great. Th- thanks very much, Ed, and, and, and thanks for okay. calling. Let me get okay. to a, cu- a couple more things here just before we wrap up. I can't believe we're almost going to be done. One thing I wanted to uh, look at here is this. Uh, again, go to don'tletitgo.com. You can see the program notes where I have links to all the stories that I'm talking about today. There's this one from Priebus. It's a, it's a hot air story is the link and it's Priebus. He says, you're darn right that the GOP will run against European socialist-style Obamacare. So you think, okay, great, the GOP is characterizing Obamacare as European and socialist-style. And he talks about the fact, you know, uh, how dare they kind of postpone Obamacare till after 2014, you know, to, to you know try to manipulate elections. And then he, uh, he says, um, anyway, listen to this. This is the one part I want to point out to you. He says, the cynical part of me says, keep Obamacare in place, keep it in place, so that we can run on it even more in 2014, end quote. Okay, this 
Rince Priebus, he's what head of Republican National Committee. He part of him says, yeah, let's just just keep it in place. And then at Hot Air, whoever this is who wrote this said, that might not be a bad strategy. It could be wiser to allow the Affordable Affordable Care Act to fail on its own by now than it would be to keep interfering with it, a strategy that has long odds on succeeding as long as Democratic control in the Senate and the White House. So this strategy is totally wrong. Why? Because as Rand Paul says, I mean, not Rand Paul, excuse me, Ted Cruz says, once the entitlement kicks in, the chance of unraveling it is slim to none. So there's that. And, you know, this idea that you wish horror on the American people, you wish more poverty, more struggling, increased pain of having a huge you know, part of your budget go to insurance and stuff. Oh, just keep it in place because we Republicans want to run against it. I mean, this is so evil. You need to be stopping this in every way, shape, and form. Rince Priebus, you need to be... Uh, supporting Ted Cruz, you know, you you don't just look at Obamacare as something that you can run against and win an election on and then repeal and replace with your own version that'll be probably at least two-thirds as bad. It's disgusting. So uh, goodbye to you. And then I want to go ahead and get back to my other story. Seriously, guys, I don't know what happened to my Safari browser on my laptop. I was on one of the websites, so I I warn you, going to one of the links of one of the stories that I've talked about today has made it such that the URL address browser in my Safari browser has disappeared and that I'm having to navigate without putting an address in the browser or even hit the back button on the browser. The back button appeared only in the pop-up window and I didn't dare touch it. So I don't know what's going on. I've got Troubles, 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 and I'm sorry about this. But let me get to a couple other things. Ashton Kutcher made a speech at the Teen Choice Awards. And for whatever you think about it, you know, Ashton Kutcher, he's not a great intellectual. He, uh, you know, he has his limitations. But he probably did a workable job, poor job, not pun intended, portraying Steve Jobs in the movie that I believe is released today. And then he made what I think is a fairly decent speech here at the Teen Choice Awards. Let me go ahead and play you a little bit of the speech. I've got it queued up to the relevant portion. Here we go. With you guys, because I think it, it's helped me be here today. So it's really three things. The first thing is about opportunity. The second thing is about being sexy. I wish I could cut out the screams, guys. Sorry. And the third thing is about living life. So first, opportunity. I believe that opportunity looks a lot like hard work. When I was 13, I had my first job with my dad carrying shingles up to the roof. And then I got a job washing dishes at a restaurant. And then I got a job in a grocery store deli. And then I got a job in a factory sweeping cereal dust off the ground. And I've never had a job in my life that I was better than. I was always just lucky to have a job. And every job I had was a stepping stone to my next job. And I never quit my job until I had my next job. And so opportunities look a lot like work. Number two, being sexy. The sexiest 
thing in the entire world is being really smart. I'm sorry, I got to stop that there, everyone, because the show's almost over. But go ahead and check that out at my blog. There are people who who are of two minds about this. Some people say that it's sad that this is what passes for, you know, that this is what passes for something good in the culture. But there's other people who say, look, if you look at it in the context of today, Ashton Kutcher, who is out there praising hard work and being intelligent is so much better than what you might expect. There's another clip over at my blog that is much better than you might expect as well, and that is Kris Jenner basically attacking Obama and standing up for her daughter Kim Kardashian and Kanye, specifically on the idea of shooting as high as you can and earning as much money as you can. So um, check those clips out at my blog. Those are the good news that I wanted to end upon this week. So everyone, thank you for joining me. And I want to thank again my guests, Ann Chickalilla and Jeff Britting, for joining me. Go to my blog at DontLetItGo.com if you want to leave a comment on today's show. You can subscribe either to the blog Follow me on Twitter, etc. But I will talk to you next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.